one of my most, the most I'm a real sentimental guy. I, I know if you don't know me that well, you may think I'm kind of holding cold and hard and that kind of thing, but I'm really sentimental. And birthdays, I told Lorna yesterday, there's something emotionally going on. I mean, I can't even figure it out, but I, I, I have a tendency on days like that to, to kind of relive moments. And one of the moments I can't help but relive is the birth of my two boys uh, because they mean so much to me. And if, if the Lord were to take me out today, if I were to cross, try to cross the street over there, uh, Highway 31 and a truck hits me, uh, you know, and knocks me out, and I end up in heaven. I, I would, I would go uh, w- with a contented heart, and a lot of that contentment comes from the fact that both my boys love and serve God. Uh, and I don't know how many of you have kids of your own. Good, good, because you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about when I describe to you the birth of my oldest, older son Andrew. And Andrew goes, "Oh Lord." <laughs> Andrew. Uh, is our first child, and we waited seven years into our marriage before we had him, and, and uh, you know, we, we uh, I'll never forget, I had the opportunity to be in the birthing room when Lorna gave birth to him, and they were trying to get me to take pictures. This was the day before, uh, this was before camera phones and stuff like that. Yeah, I had to have real cameras or a real video, you know, one of those huge monstrous videos. So we didn't have one of those, but the doctor would say, hey, don't you want to take pictures? And I looked at him and said, no, sir, I don't want to take pictures. (laughs) I don't want the flash to go off because Andrew was going to be born via C-section. Lorna had been in labor for several hours, and the the doctor realized that Andrew was in some stress, that uh, the the cords, um, the uh, umbilical cord was being pressed down on, and his heart rate was beginning to fluctuate, going up and down. So the doctor said, we're going to have to do a C-section. And so they prepared Lorna for surgery, and I'm in the room while they're doing all that, you know, and is, is anybody had a, you don't have to answer that question, but I'm sitting there watching them, and, and they put this piece of plastic over my wife's abdomen, and she looked kind of like, it was the weirdest looking thing to me. It looked like, I know, I'm trying to be real careful here. It looked like they had put a piece of plastic and they were going to sell her abdomen as a piece of meat at the supermarket. It's just kind of weird. It was weird the way they had it. And I'm freaked out. I'd never seen anything like this before. And the the nurse kept looking at me. Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Do you want to take pictures? I don't want to take pictures. And they make the incision. And and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool because, you know make the incision and my wife's not really feeling anything because she's had the epidural and everything so she's not in pain and and I'm kind of getting into this a little bit and I'm, I'm like wondering you know what's what's my baby going to look like and they made the incision and, and I stepped back a little bit to give the doctor and the nurses a little more room I didn't want to be like you know hovering so I stepped back and they the doctor reached into her abdomen and picked the baby up and held him up and I thought to myself, oh, my God, she's given birth to a blue-green tree frog. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Andrew came out of her womb on his back doing this kind of number, real kind of slow because he was, you know, trying to stretch. And he was bluish-green because he had taken in some is it meconium fluid. And, and I thought, oh, man, it was, it was so wild what was going on. And then I watched the nurse, you know, they clipped the umbilical cord and, and they took Andrew over to a place, and they began to rub him down. And I thought, they're going to rub his skin off, man. They were just like, you know, been there. You watch them do it, and it's like, you're going to hurt him. You're going to hurt him. Don't hurt him. Rubbing real hard, and his little skin started turning all bright red where they were rubbing him so hard. And I, I, and I, the whole, I was completely brand new to this process. I didn't know what to expect until the doctor looked at me. And, and they, of course, they stuck their finger down his throat to kind of clear his throat to make sure he was breathing. They popped him on the back. I'm like, you're going to break his back. You know, when they placed Andrew in my arms, I will never forget the rush of emotion. I mean, for the first time, I think I really understood what responsibility meant. This life was now my responsibility. I was going to have to provide for this little guy. I was going to have to be his daddy. I was going to have to be emotionally responsible for him, spiritually responsible for him, physically responsible for him. I was overwhelmed by a sense of responsibility. And, and I'll be honest with you, 
I, th- I thought I had dreamed about what Andrew's life, uh, I thought I dreamed about Andrew's life before, but when I held him in my arms for the first time, I really began to dream about what kind of life Andrew would live. And I'll be honest with you, it never crossed my mind to dream about what Andrew would do. You see, I didn't care if Andrew would become a doctor or a lawyer or an athlete or a te- I didn't care what Andrew would do. I was much more concerned about who Andrew would be. You understand what I'm talking about? I mean, as a father, I have a dream for my son and his life, and it really has very little to do with who, what he would do. It was all about who he would be. What kind of character would he have? Would he be a man of integrity? Would he be a man who kept his word? Would he be a man who was faithful to his wife, who was loyal to his friends? Would he be a man who, who would be kind to people, strangers, and even those that would hurt him? Would he be a good man, a man that would always tend to do the right thing and wouldn't go to, you know, in default mode and do the wrong thing? Would he be a loving man? Would he be a godly man? That was my concern. It wasn't about what he would do. I didn't really, you know, I would be just as happy if he dug ditches all of his life as long as he was the right kind of man and the right kind of ditch digger. That's really all that matters, right? Lorna and I have tried. Lorna and I have tried to provide Andrew and Micah an environment to help him grow up to be the right kind of man. And we've tried to protect Andrew from harmful influences, and we've tried to guard him from unhealthy relationships, and, and, and we've tried to make sure that he didn't stray into dangerous situations because it's our responsibility. We recognize that responsibility. We've tried to provide Andrew and Micah both with an emotionally stable home life. We want them to know we love you. Regardless of what you do, we're going to love you anyway. We've, com- we've, uh, we- we've tried to provide uh, Andrew with good educational opportunities to help us train his mind uh, for whatever the Lord brought in- into his life to do. We've tried to provide Andrew with great, healthy, spiritual experiences. We want Andrew to know God, to love God, to serve God. We want to do everything we can to protect him from what might hurt him, to provide for him what might help him. That's been the whole goal of our life. Everything we've done has been with that goal in mind. We've comforted Andrew when when we thought he needed comfort. We've also disciplined Andrew when we thought he needed discipline. Thank God Andrew didn't need much, but Micah, on the other hand, we'll talk about him later. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there, but <laughs> well, we got stories, don't we? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Lorna and I did everything we thought we had to do or needed to do or knew to do to give Andrew all that he needed to grow up into his potential, not really caring what he would do with his life, caring much more about what he would be in his life. Listen to me. Listen, this is, where I'm, this is the point I've been trying to drive home the last couple of weeks. In much the same way, God has dreams for you and me. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature into the right kind of person. He gives us everything we need to maximize that potential. He, first, uh, 2 Peter 1.3 says, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. And it's up to us to cooperate with the Lord as He works with us to grow us up to become the person that He dreamed for us to be. We are His children. He dreams dreams over you and me. And He wants to... You know, okay, let's be honest. When we pray for God's will, typically we're praying... For something about what we're going to do. What kind of job am I going to have? God, is it your will for me to buy this house? God, is it your will for me to marry this person? I'm going to say this, and I want you to understand it comes from a heart that loves you. God could care less pretty much what you do. He wants to get your heart right. If you get your heart right, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to have the right mind. You're going to have the wisdom to know what to do. He's trying to make you the right kind of person so that you will do the right kind of things. Does that make sense? He dreams dreams over us, and his will for us has a lot more to do with what kind of person we're going to be rather than what we're going to do with what he's given us. Are we straight? 
Colossians 2, uh, 1 through 7 gives us an outline or gives us a blueprint or gives us a goal, if you will. Where it tells us where God intends to take us as his sons and his daughters. It provides for us a blueprint for growth. A blueprint for growth. Colossians 2, 1 through 7 gives us a picture of what a mature child of God will look like as God uses every resource at his disposal to grow us up. And that's the way we've been looking at this passage of Scripture. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. If you, didn't, uh, if, if, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we can give you the manuscript or you can listen to it online. But I'd love for you to go back and review that sometime this afternoon if you would because I'm going to now talk about the second half of this passage. This is a blueprint for growth. If you want to know what God's trying to do in your life, this is it. This is it. This is his plan for us all. This is his will for us all. This is where he's trying to take us as he grows us up. This is what he brings all of his power to bear, to make us the right kind of people. Here it is. Let's read it together. And I'm going to uh, give you the few points that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Paul writes and says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Verse 2, my goal, my goal, this is a goal expressed by the Holy Spirit through Paul, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I told you what I thought that meant. God wants us to have a strong faith in the face of adversity. God is going to grow us up to have strong faith in hard times. How many of you are going through hard times? Guess what? God brings some of those hard times, not all of them now, but God will allow those storms in our life in order to test us, to show us that maybe we need to grow in this area a little bit. So you can expect your faith to be tested in the storms of life because God is, intends to uh, build up strong faith in hard times. And united in love. A couple of weeks ago, I said that meant love for others. God wants us to learn to love other people as he has loved us. And he wants to, us to learn to express that love, not just talk about it. So we can expect unlovable, unlovable people in our life to stretch our capacity to love. That's going to happen. I should have gotten a big amen right there. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Another mark of a mature Christian is that they are growing in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. That they are growing and deepening in their relationship with Jesus. So you need to expect to invest your time, energy, and emotion into building that relationship because God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Another characteristic of a mature believer is that we have discernment in confusing times. Boy, are we living in some confusing times. He wants us to be able to tell the difference between truth and deception. He wants us to be able to tell the difference between right and wrong, between what's good and what's best. So you can expect your ability to discern to be tested constantly, and it certainly is in this culture. Let's go on. Those are the four that we talked about already. There are three more I want to point out to you. Three more components to this blueprint for growth. Verse 5 says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are. Say disciplined. And how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this word. I pray, God, that uh, you will speak through me today, that you will get me out of your way. You will say to us today exactly what needs to be said, nothing more, nothing less. I pray that each of us would have our listening ears on, that we would have ears to hear, and a heart to embrace the truth as you give it to us today, and help us, God, to put it into practice because we know it's in practicing, in obedience to your word, that we receive the blessing from it. We love you. We give you glory. Thank you for this word and its power. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to just continue to talk about this blueprint for growth. What does God want each of his children to grow up to be? How many of you claim to be a son or daughter of God this morning? 
well, this is where God is taking you. And parts of it you're not going to like because as we know, change can be painful. Can I get an amen? amen. But God loves you so much, he's not going to let you stay where you are. He intends to raise you up, mature you, grow you up to be the right kind of person. Right? Amen? Brian, we good? Man, I've seen you grow so much the last few weeks. It excites me, man, looking at you. So let's continue this. The next characteristic I want to point out to you uh, of a mature Christian is this. You are disciplined in training. If you're growing up, if you're maturing in the Lord, you will be disciplined in your training. Verse 5 says that even though Paul isn't with him physically, in his spirit, he delights to see how disciplined these Colossian believers are. Disciplined. Say that word with me again. Disciplined. I'm learning to be disciplined in my diet. Up until two months ago, I ate anything I wanted. And I was beginning to balloon in weight. My mom kept looking at me and saying, son, you need to lose some weight. When your mom starts telling you you need to lose weight, you better listen to your mom. Just saying, guys, okay? So I've learned, I'm, I'm trying to learn to push away from, I don't like discipline. I don't like being disciplined. I mean, my wife made me a birthday cake yesterday. I'm telling you, three months ago, I would have eaten a quarter of that cake all by myself, and I would have hidden the rest for later. <laughs> but yesterday, because I'm trying to discipline myself and lose some weight, I had two pieces. I'm not going to lie. Two pieces. But there's still plenty of it left in the refrigerator, so guess what daddy's going to do when he gets home? All right. Discipline. Listen, discipline is a military term. The word used here for discipline is a Greek word, and it, 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 it is a military term used by the Greeks. Discipline here in this, in this context brings to mind a soldier who trains in preparation for a battle. Day after day. How many of you have been in the military? I know several of you have, so you know what I'm talking about. Day after day and drill after drill, the soldiers follow that training regimen that's been prescribed by the commanding officer, whether they like it or not. Whether they want to get out of bed or not, they're going to get out of bed. They're going to go to sleep when the commanding officer says, you've got to turn the light off. They're going to eat when the commanding officer says, you're going to eat. When they're supposed to be on the parade ground, they're not going to hang around the bunkhouse. They're going to the parade ground. Can I get an amen from you, from you soldiers? And at times, these drills, same drills, day in, day out, training session after training session after training these drills can seem so boring and so monotonous. And at times, let's be honest, those training drills and the regimen that you're having to follow may seem pointless. Come on, fess up, soldiers. How many, how many times did you go through those drills thinking, what in the world are we doing that again today for? I mean, we've, we've done this now for three weeks, man. We got it down. But here you go again, got to do it again. It was in your mind, wasn't it? This is so, I bet you said it. This is pointless. This is pointless. No, it's not pointless. It's discipline. It's discipline. A good soldier trusts his commanding officer. And that good soldier keeps on training even when he doesn't understand what he's training for or why he's training at all. A good soldier is preparing for battle because he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming, and he's trusting that the commander will have him ready to fight that battle and overcome the enemy when the enemy shows up. Let me be honest. Most of the soldiers in the Lord's army, we're not so disciplined in our training. Let's be honest. It's okay to be honest. Many of the soldiers in the Lord's army, man, we're just not so disciplined in our training. Let's look at it from the opposite end of the spectrum here. The opposite of discipline training is undisciplined training, right? Haphazard training, impulsive training, inconsistent training. And to be perfectly honest, probably and sadly, most of the words that I just used describe the majority of us and our training regimen. It's haphazard, it's inconsistent, it's impulsive, only when we feel like doing it. And maybe it's that lack of discipline training that's why so many of us are unprepared for life's battles when they finally come our way. We haven't trained 
We haven't, dis we haven't disciplined ourselves in our training, and when the enemy comes against us, we are overwhelmed because we don't know how to handle it. It's not because our commanding officer didn't give us a training regimen to follow. It's just because we were haphazard in following it and inconsistent in following it. So when the enemy shows up, we're not ready to fight, and it shows. Maybe it's our haphazard, impulsive, inconsistent training. Maybe that's the reason we lack victory in our life. 1 Timothy 4 says this, Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Stop wasting time over nonsense. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. A mature believer is disciplined in their training. It's not haphazard. It's not impulsive. It's not inconsistent. It's focused. It's intentional. Whether you like it or not, whether it seems pointless to you right now or not, you know that your commanding officer has has developed a training regimen that will prepare you for the battles to come. And I want to point out to you, just real quickly, four components of this training regimen that we've been given, that God has given us, that we should follow. I'm telling you, these are, these are not things to be taken lightly. This is not a training regimen that you can kind of walk away from and think everything's going to be okay. How many of you know you're going to face a battle in the near future? You may already be in one. Well, here's how you train. Here's how you train. You read the Word of God. You read the Word of God. A study just came out from Lifeway Publishing, and our ignorance of the Word of God is astounding, and it's dis discouraging. The vast majority of evangelical believers think that Jesus is not the only way to heaven, that all that other religions, Islam, Buddhism, and others out there also provide a way to heaven. Can I tell you this? The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But we're ignorant. We don't know what Jesus has said. Now, either Jesus, by making that statement, is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's telling us the truth. We've got to make our, up our mind how we feel about that. So you need to read the Word. That's the first part of this training regimen that God has given us. God speaks to His children through His Word. He gives us commands that we should follow. He gives us promises that we should hold on to. Look, you can't know the will of God apart from knowing the Word of God. You can't. And so I encourage you, make it part of your daily activity, your daily training regimen. Find five, 10, 15 minutes a day to read that Bible. Get your Bible app on your phone. How many of you got a Bible app on your phone? If, how many of you don't have a Bible app on your phone? Get one. Easy to do. I'll show you how to do it, Chris. Anybody in here can show you how to get it, a Bible app. Listen, this is what's really cool. You don't even have to read the Bible. It will read itself to you. Woo! I mean, we're living in glory days. Turn that puppy on when you're traveling. I'm telling you what, you'll have a lot less road rage. The second part of this regimen is to pray. Spend time communicating with God. Pray. Hold frequent conversations with God. Tell Him your dreams. Tell Him your fears. Tell Him your needs. Tell Him your desires. And let Him speak to you. Let Him tell you of His love. Let Him remind you of His concern. Let Him share with you His plans for your life. Get a journal. Write it down. Brian is really good. I don't listen. He works with us in different ways. I am not a journal kind of guy. I have tried in the past to write a journal. Brian is awesome at doing the journal thing, and he has passed that on to a couple of guys in our church, and they seem to be taken to it like, you know, fish to water. And I'm like, cool, get a journal out, start writing. I tell you, this is the truth. Even though I don't do very good at journaling, I do remember this when I did do a journal back in my early days walking with the Lord. When you keep track of God's answers to your prayers, nothing builds your faith more. When you can look back and say, man, God spoke to me in that time. Now, I'm going through something similar now, but that's okay. God got me through that. He's going to get me through this. It builds faith, man. Nothing builds faith like tracking God's work in your life. Pray, spend time with God, communicate with Him. Third thing, you need to fellowship with other believers. 
this is not a, uh, uh, th this, this is a, what's the word I'm looking for? We think, we, we, think that, uh, we think that fellowship is a suggestion. We think that it's an option. It's not an option. This, the Bible was written to a community of faith. We have to put into practice his commands. We have to learn here how to follow Christ. And, if, and this is what he's given us one another for, to hold one another accountable, to learn to love one another, to learn to share his grace with other people, to and share our experiences with other people. I'm telling you, this is the one thing I really love most about the people in, re, in the recovery community. They understand that they cannot live this life apart from other people. They need people in their life to stay strong in the Lord. They understand that. I love the recovery community for that because I'm afraid a lot of us self-righteous and prideful church members think, hey, man, I'm the Clint Eastwood of Christianity. I can take you or leave you. It doesn't really matter. A man's got to stand on his own. Well, I know I'm too weak to stand on my own. I got to have brothers propping me up sometimes. I got to have them picking me up sometimes. I got to have them washing me down sometimes because, man, I can, get, I can get weak real fast. I need people in my life to keep me going. I need to hear their experiences. I need to hear their testimonies. I need to know how they came through the situation that I'm going through now. I need to know that I can be loved even when I am unlovable. And that's what we do for one another. God moves in his community. This is a family that he's called us to. We need to worship God together. We need to study God's word together. We need to spend time in God's presence together. We need to serve God together. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You see, God intends us to live this life in community. It can't be done apart from that. It cannot be done effectively apart from that. So how does the devil work? He tries to isolate us, doesn't he? He tries to think, oh, man, another church service. I don't need another church service. I said that to, uh, I was visiting with Robin and uh, Bob the other day. And I said, you know what? The one thing I don't need is another church service. And I mean that. I don't need it. I love, I love the Lord. I don't need to come here and sing songs to keep my love for the Lord fresh because I do have a walk with the Lord and it's a consistent walk. But you know what I do need? I need you in my life. I think you need me in your life. I need, let me tell you something, when I hear testimonies of what God's doing in their life and they're just beginning to their walk with, with the Lord, it makes me remember the days when I felt that, that passion. Is, man, I want to feel that passion again, you know what I mean? It sharpens me, it exhilarates me, it, it excites me to see what God's doing in other people's life. So I don't come for the church service. I come for the fellowship and the corporate experience of worshiping God together. You think my mom and dad came here for eight years or whatever after serving for 32 years as a missionary in India because they needed to hear me preach? Heck no. My dad's forgotten more than I've ever known. He didn't come to hear me preach. He came to hang out with you and hang out with Jesus together. We need each other. Don't ever forget that. We need each other. I need you to hold me accountable. I need to hold you accountable. I need to be able to look at your face so that I, so that I can see what's going on. You need to, see, to look at me and see what's going on in me. Move on. I, that's, that's become a soapbox for me. The fourth thing I want to encourage you to do as part of this tra training regiment, regimen is to share your story. Learn to share your story. A mature, mature believers understand this to be a part of who they are. It's, it's a part of the process of growth and training. They, they look for opportunities to share that story. They even create opportunities to tell others what God has done for them because sharing your story puts you squarely in the purposes of God for your life. God called us to go out into the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to obey whatsoever commands he has he has given us, listen, it's not just my responsibility, it's your responsibility too, and as you go out and share your story and share what God's doing in your life, guess what happens? You're right square, smack dab in the purpose for which you were created. And there's something exhilarating about doing what you're supposed to do. So share your story. Let God use you. Let God use you in those recovery groups. Let God use you in your office as you share what God and the, the, the way the mercies of God are operating in your life. Let, let God use you in those classrooms, students. 
Don't keep your mouth shut. God's not a secret to be kept. Share what you know. And there are other, there are all kinds of other things that the Lord uh, brings to our attention in His Word. Uh, but I think those are four of the most important. Read the Word, pray, fellowship with other believers, share your story. I mean, disciplined believers have found other ways as well to, to train. Disciplined believers will fast, they will give, they will simplify, they will slow down. Listen, disciplined believers will do whatever the Word of God prescribes as a means of deepening their walk with God. Let me make this clear right here. Because you are consistent in your training program, because you are intentional in your training program, does not mean you're earning brownie points with God. Those things will not save you. The blood of Jesus saves you. But those things will make you stronger because they keep you in the presence of God. And they keep you in His grace. And they keep you experiencing His presence in your life. The flip side of that is, if you are haphazard in your training, if you are undisciplined in your training, if you are inconsistent in your training, doesn't mean God doesn't love you anymore. He loves you just as much as He ever did. And it doesn't mean that that he's taking brownie points away from you. What it does mean is, don't be surprised when you face a battle in life and you don't know what to do. And you keep running around the mountain over and over and over again. And the same conversation that you're having today you had four years ago. You're still saved, still on your way to heaven. It's just you're kind of... I started to use the R word, but that would be inappropriate. That would be a Donald Trump thing. I'll, I'll back up. You're a little, uh, what do they call it? Handicapped. Slow. <laughs> Slow. There you go. I'm kidding. What? Insane. And listen, man. I, I just, I, I didn't mean to offend anybody there. I'm sorry. I, I, want, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you right now. I want to challenge you right now to consider your walk with the Lord. I want you to consider the training regimen that you practice in your life. Which term best describes you today? Are you disciplined or haphazard in your training? Are you intentional or impulsive in your training? Are you consistent or inconsistent in your training? Because I tell you this, your spiritual growth greatly depends on the way you answer that question. God loves you, whether you're inconsistent or consistent. His feelings for you don't change, and his mercies for you don't change. But discipline training keeps you with a fresh flow of his mercy every morning and keeps his presence alive, and you're more, more focused on what he wants and not on what your own selfish self wants. All right, let's move on. I, I could spend all day on that, and I probably have just about, yeah, just about have done that. Okay. Another characteristic of a mature believer is a consistent daily walk. Uh, let, me, let me go back and say this. Uh, a, a preacher from a long time ago said this. The steady discipline of intimate friendship with Jesus results in men becoming like him. The steady discipline of intimate friendship with Jesus, and that all that, that's all that training regimen is about, developing an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The steady discipline of intimate friendship with Jesus results in men becoming like him. Which leads to the second characteristic of a mature believer, a consistent daily life. This is where God's taking us. He is taking us to a life that's consistent, consistently pleasing to him, consistently in step with him. Verse 6 says, So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in Him. Say that phrase with me. Continue to live your lives in Him. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in union with Him, reflecting His character in the things you do and say, living lives that lead others away from sin. This is where God's taking us. He is taking us to a life that's consistently pleasing to him, a life that is consistently in union with his, a life that is consistently lined up with his will, a life that is consistently pointing people to Jesus. 
I want you to notice the sequence that Paul presents to us here. He says, first, we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord and begin a relationship with him. But then we should continue to walk with him and follow his leadership as the Lord of our lives. You see, it's a package deal. This is something we have done in our church circles. We have separated the truth that Jesus is our Savior from the truth that Jesus is our Lord. He's one and the same. He is Savior and Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean, he doesn't come halfway. You either have all of them, you have none of them. Christ Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We've got to, we've got to reconnect this uh, uh, salvation with, with uh, righteousness and, and right works. We've got to do this again. And it's, I'll be happy to point out all the Bible verses that speak of that if you need me to. But I wanted you to notice that sequence that's even given to us here in Colossians. It starts by us receiving Christ as Savior, but walking with Him as Lord. They go together. This is what it's all about. And this is the hard part for us, isn't it? This is the hard part for us. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's a package deal. You see, the most powerful evidence that we are who we claim to be the most powerful evidence that we are who we claim to be is the life that we live. 1 John 2.6 puts it this way, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Your walk should match your talk. There's a story that's told about St. Francis of Assisi. And one day Assisi invited one of his, uh, uh, Francis invited one of his younger monks to join him on a preaching uh, uh, expedition down in a local town, and the young monk jumped at the opportunity to be with this, you know, this revered leader of his church, and they entered the town together, and they passed through all the main thoroughfares, down all the main streets, they wandered down the alleys and in the byways of the town, they made their way through the outlying neighborhoods, and eventually they returned to their monastery home. And as they approached the monastery, the young monk reminded Francis of the original mission of the trip. He said, Father, did you forget that we went down into the town to preach? Francis replied to the young man, and he said, my son, we did preach. We did preach. We were preaching while we walked. We were seen by men. Our behavior was watched closely. Our sermon has been preached. Listen to this line. It is no use, my son, to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere as we walk. How different would this world be if everyone who named the name of Jesus and claimed to be a son and a daughter of God would live as Jesus lived? That's where God's taken us. And maybe that's why some of us are being disciplined right now in our lives. And we find ourselves back in a place that we thought we'd never be back to, but here we are. Our little hands are being slapped, our little tails are being. But it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he's going to save you inside and out. And he's got something he wants you to do, a purpose you were created for. And he's going to use you to be a light to this world that desperately needs more light. Listen, one of the great tragedies of our day, I'm telling you, one of the great tragedies of our day is that so many of us say we believe in God, but we live as if he doesn't exist at all. I mean, we call ourselves Christians, we call ourselves the sons and the daughters of God, but we deny him with our lives. And that's a tragedy in, in, in this world right now. See, a mark of a true believer, a mark of a mature believer, is a life that consistently looks more and more like Jesus. We're on a lifelong journey. Don't get me wrong. Not one of us in this room is perfect. We're all a work in progress. And God hasn't given up on any of us yet. And he won't because he says in Philippians uh, 1, 6 that we can be confident of this, that the good work he's begun in us, he will complete. So let's be clear. He's not finished with any of us yet, but he's still working. Are you letting him work in your life? That's the question. Are you letting him do what he wants to do? Are you making progress? Are you growing? Are you consistently reflecting who Jesus is more and more with your life? Are you putting into practice the things Christ is showing you? 
really where the rubber meets the road. Can I be honest with you? I don't know how God works with you. This is the way he works with me. When I keep bumping my head into a wall long enough, my head, I start having headaches all the time. I mean, you know, spiritual headaches all the time. I kind of step back and say, okay, God, what, why, why? Why the same wall? And, he's, and he usually pinpoints something in my life that needs to change. An attitude I need to change or a behavior that's got to change. I've got a choice at that point. Do I do what the Lord is telling me to do? Am I going to follow his instructions? Am I going to follow his commands? Or am I going to say, well, thank you, Lord, but not right now? Only to go back to doing what in my life? And here's what I found out about God. He usually works on me one issue at a time. And if I'm not willing to let him change that particular issue in my life, well, until I get that one down, <laughs> until I yield in that area of my life, well, he's not going to work on anything else. Is, is that common, or is that just me? Thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to find a scripture for it. I'm just saying that's the way he seems to work with me. He's trying to grow us up. He's trying to help us live a consistent life that brings him glory, that honors him, that represents him well. We say that all the time. So my question is, are you putting into practice the things that Christ is showing you to do? Are you putting them into practice as he reveals them to you? Or are you just going through the motions? If you're just going through the motions, guess what? It's going to be a long, frustrating life. Can I get an amen? <laughs> are you growing up to become more like Jesus? It is progress, not perfection. I understand that. But are you growing up? Can you see the change? Or better yet, can the people around you see the change? Because sometimes we live in denial, and we'd like to think we've changed, and we really haven't. Final mark of a mature believer I want to point out to you is this. Disciplined in our training. What was the other one? I'm going blank. A consistent daily life. The third one is this, an overflow of gratitude. An overflow. Now, there are others in here I could, in this passage I could point out, but this is one I want to focus on as we close and get, get ready to, to spend some time with him. One final mark of a, of a mature believer is overflowing gratitude. Verse 7 says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. You see, as you mature in your faith, as you grow in the Lord, you will also grow more and more thankful. There develops in your life an overwhelming sense of gratitude for all that God has done and all that God is still doing in your life. Warren Wearsby put it this way, great Bible teacher, he said, a, a thankful spirit is a mark of Christian maturity. When a believer is abounding in thanksgiving, he's really making progress. You know why? Because our default is to complain and whine about everything. And when God really gets hold of us, and when he really begins to overflow in us, something changes, and we start expressing gratitude instead of whining. Look, Here's why we grow in gratitude as we grow in the Lord. You see, as your relationship with God grows, and as you mature uh, in your understanding of God, you find yourself more and more in awe of God. Can I get an amen? Uh, I mean, he's so holy. God is so glorious. God is so powerful. God is so loving. God is so patient. And you, you, you find yourself less and less impressed with yourself. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like me standing next to Arnold Schwarzenegger and thinking I'm some kind of big and bad and strong. Arnold's over here standing. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to feel puny beside Arnold, right? Guess what? I feel puny when I consider who God is. I mean, God is everything I'm not. Come on, let's be honest. He's everything that we are not. I mean, I mean, God is awesome. He's wonderful. He's incredible. He's loving and patient and good. I'm just flat out the other side of that spectrum. Let's get honest with ourselves. I mean, you, you find yourself less and less impressed with yourself as you focus your attention on God. You find, I ain't all that much. I mean, we're so sinful. We're so puny. We're so weak. We're so selfish. We are so impatient. I mean, at some point, as you grow 
in the Lord, as you come to understand him more, more and more, at some point, each of us will stop and we're going to ask ourselves, why me, Lord? Why would you love and save somebody like me? Why? I'm not worth saving. I'm not worth spit. And yet you went to that cross and you died for me. How great is your love. I am so faithless and you are so faithful. How can this be? How can this be? I mean, when you, when you realize the depths of your guilt and when you, when you realize the height of God's grace, you can't help but stop and feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude to God for who he is and what he's done. I mean, that's why I saw Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There is no reason. I had a conversation already about this with a, a lady in our church that's struggling with some family members who are filled with self-righteousness and pride. There is no room, and I'm speaking to those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, but we are not growing up as we should. There is no room in a mature believer's heart for self-righteousness and pride. None. A mature believer realizes it's God that's done all the saving. It's God that's done all the work. I just got to get out of his way. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. There's not one good thing in me. If there is any good in me at all, it's God and him at work, not me. The best we can do is just get out of his way and let God finish what he started. If I get in the way, I'm going to mess it up. So there's no room in mature believers for self-righteousness and pride. You shouldn't be in it. <laughs> Because you ain't all that. He is all that. And there's no room in our hearts, for the, in the heart of a mature believer, for dis discontent and worry. And this is where a lot of us need work. I understand that. I find myself at times struggling with discontentment. I told Chris yesterday, we're all operating out of insecurities. Every decision we make typically comes out of our insecurities. We're fear-based kinds of people. We make our choices because we're afraid of losing something or afraid we're going to miss out on something, so we make dumb choices. But in, if we are truly growing up in the Lord, there's no room for fear. There's no room for discontentment. There's no room for worry because we understand, we realize that God loved us at our very worst and he still loves me now. He's not going to turn his back on me. He's, he's going to give me what I need. Romans 8.32 says it this way, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's not holding out on us. He loves us better than that. And in his right time and in his right way, he will give us the things we need. We just have to trust him. Trust in his love, trust in his goodness. We can be sure that God will give us everything we need at the right time in the right way because he wants us to live for his glory. So, so we ought to live with a life that's overflowing with gratitude because we're making spiritual progress, because we're reaching maturity. It's a life, it's a life of overflowing progress, uh, uh, overflowing gratitude. It's a life that's learning to trust God and learning to take God at his word. Second, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Listen, let me, just, uh, let me, let me bring this section to a close by saying this. Uh, this and this is uh, an insight into my own uh, walk with the Lord. For, for myself, I have learned to monitor the condition of my heart by the speech patterns of my mouth. The Bible says, for, for out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks, right? So I have learned to monitor my spiritual journey with the Lord Am I in the right place I need to be by the words that come out of my mouth? If my words are expressing gratitude more often than not, then my heart's in pretty good shape. If, if I am expressing gratitude, if I'm expressing thanksgiving, if I am telling people thank you, then more likely than not, my heart's in a pretty good place and my walk with God is where it ought to be. Flip side of that is, if my words often express worry, if I am often self-righteous in the way I speak, or if I find myself complaining a lot, my heart has lost its focus. 
and I need to get something right. Refocus. I'm just telling you, this is a key to me. This is a key for me. I want my life to be one that's overflowing. How many of you like to be around a complaining, whiny person? How many of you want your children to grow up to be whiny and complaining? Well, God doesn't either. God doesn't either. All right, let's finish up. God has big dreams for you and me. Worship team, if you will, come on back for just a moment. God has big dreams for you and me. I mean, he, he is out to completely transform our lives. He will not leave us the same. He is not going to leave us the same. It's going to be an extraordinary makeover in which he changes us from the inside out. He's going to grow us up. He's going to mature us. He's going he's to help us become everything he dreams for us to be. It won't be an easy process. There will be times of change, and with change often comes pain. But he's going to make us his sons and his daughters. He's going, to make us, he's going to make us mature. He's going to make us grown-ups in Him. He's going to give us a faith that's able to handle adversity. He's going to give us a deep and committed love for other people. He's going to grow us in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. He's going to help us discern truth in confusing times. He's going to discipline us. And he wants us to be disciplined in our spiritual training. He's going to help us become consistent in our daily living. And He is going to help us overflow with gratitude no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Listen. This is the gospel. As much as it is the gospel that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, to save us, to bring us into a relationship with him, just as much as that is the gospel, this is the gospel. God's going to grow you up. Every resource in, at God's disposal, he is going to use to make you grow up. Like it or not. <laughs> I don't know about you. I want to grow up. I want to be everything God has dreamed for me to be. I don't want to be anything less than what God has dreamed for me to be. Are you that way too?